You're listening to the audio ministries of First Baptist Church of Troy, Texas. You're invited to join us for live and in-person morning worship every Sunday morning at 1045 a.m. Visit fbctroytx.org for a list of our activity times and family-centered community ministries. Now here's today's message. Before we get to Daniel, happy Father's Day, all you dads. Yes, yes. And um, yesterday, after about longer than I care to admit, of the water in my boy's bathroom sink remaining in the sink even when the plunger is down, I went to war, armed with a coat hanger and a shop vac. I did not bring the shop vac. It is unsightly at the moment, and it smells unsightly. I don't know how something smells unsightly, but this does. And so these were my weapons, and uh, you never, never underestimate the power of a man's resolve who has a coat hanger and a shop vac. Because I hate, like hate, taking sink pipes apart. You want to know why? Not because it's so hard. It's impossible to put them back together without water coming out. So if it's not leaking, I'm like, leave well enough alone, man. All right, dads, you tracking with me? So this was my, my father's, father's Day Eve that I did this. And um, I tried this big hook on this end, too big. Didn't work. I need a small one. This little guy, it's all wiggly. You can't see it. This little bitty hook. And uh, so with this hook and the shop vac, I got out the contents, which I will not open. You can't see them all, so I will describe them for you. First of all, um, you might be a dad if you've ever pulled a green Lego man from a bathroom sink. I uh, partially dismembered this poor fellow as I pulled him out with my needle nose pliers. I would just hit the shop back and they would come and they would stick in that little deal that makes the plunger go up and down. And I was like, oh, there's one. And I go in real careful and I grab it and put the vice grips on it, pull it out. I got the cap to one of those little smelly markers. That's a marker cap right there. And a, a nasty, ginormous, it's this big and this big around, piece of gum. What? And uh, then I got out an, an expo marker right there, okay? We could have started an elementary school with what I have in my bathroom sink. Expo marker, and then the crown of it all. And this one kept going, bloop, and it would just be this pink pointy tip of this thing sticking up. I was like, what is that? It's a toothbrush. I got a big pink toothbrush right here. And so I got, you know, I got, I got about five ounces worth of stuff out of my kid's bathroom sink. Happy Father's Day to me. I'll tell you what, water can't wait to get out of that sink now. It's been waiting a long time. But, um, you know, I was, uh, I was thinking about, you know, yesterday just about being a dad. And, you know, these are every, just get ready. If you, if you had it happen to you, it's coming. It's coming like a storm. And you'll see it and you'll have to fix it. Anyway, but, um, you know, being a dad, it, uh, the things your kids say, the things your kids do, this morning, I'm in there, we call it scratching off my whiskers. I got that from my dad. So I'm scratching off my whiskers this morning, and I just finished up and threw some, you know, rubbing alcohol on my face because I'm too cheap for the smell good stuff. And uh, I did the oh, thing from Home Alone, I'm good to go. And I, and I hear Nathan comes walking in wearing his brand new Spider-Man undies because we're potty training, and that's a whole other sermon illustration. Not going there right now. But he comes in and he looks up at me and he says, 
Daddy, would you like a hug? And I'm like, after I picked myself up out of the melted puddle on the floor, I said, I would love a hug. And so he comes and gives me a great big hug. And um, man, it's, you know, not every day is like that. Some, some days are like this, and some days are like that, and everything in between. But uh, what a joy to be a dad and have that. Um, and so happy Father's Day, and I'm going to set Father's Day into the annals of the past now, and we're going to move on into Daniel. But um, remember that the great, I think the great application to take away is that we have a Heavenly Father, and we're His children, okay? And our Heavenly Father, He cleans out our sink. Yes, He does. We make choices, and we do this, like my boys did. And you know what? He loves it when we come to Him after He scratched off His whiskers, and we say, Daddy, you want a hug? And so I would encourage you men especially since it's Father's Day, but all of you, ladies alike, go to your Heavenly Father today and ask Him if He wants a hug. I guarantee you He does. If you haven't done that yet today, do that today because He loves you. He's your Father. When He taught His disciples how to pray, He said, Our Father who is in heaven, cause your name to be honored. And so Jesus revealed that the primary relationship that we have is father to child. He's our father and we're his children. So take that, stick it in your pocket and pull it out later today and do something good with it, okay? All right, so Daniel, if you've got your Bible, open it up to Daniel. I'm not doing any PowerPoint today. That just distracts me sometimes. I figured that if people have been preaching since the early church and most of that, like 2,000 years worth, they didn't have PowerPoint, we'll be okay this morning. So, all right, good deal. Um, we're just going to go through the Bible and see what it says, and I think the Lord's going to speak to us. I want to remind you, do you remember what we said last week? The road map, that the book of Daniel is like a road map from here, well, actually from Daniel's perspective, it was from then to what's going to happen all the way to the return of Jesus Christ, all that good stuff in between. And it is fascinating. And we're looking in this series of Christ in the Old Testament we are looking at these imprints of Jesus and where we find him showing up. We've got two today that are off the chain. They're amazing. And so I, I'd encourage you to listen um, and listen well this morning. Daniel chapter 9 is where we're going to start today. Daniel chapter 9. But by way of reminder, our big picture as you're turning there. Daniel chapter 2, we looked at that crazy dream Nebuchadnezzar had, great big statue, head of gold, arms and chest of silver, you know, belly and thighs of bronze, the iron legs, and then these feet with this mixture of clay and iron. And we said that God used that image to describe these upcoming kingdoms that from our perspective, we look back and they're all history, documented. You can go read about it, all right? And so that was Daniel 2, and we saw that Jesus was that rock it was cut out, but not with human hands. That came and it crashed on those feet and shattered them to bits. And the whole statue fell down and became like the, the chaff of wheat blown away on the wind. And we said that Jesus' kingdom, Jesus and his kingdom, is the rock that destroys the world kingdoms and becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. That was dream number one. Second, in Daniel 7, we looked at this vision that Daniel got with these four beasts 
you know, this winged lion, and, and then this, this bear that's bigger on one side than the other, and, and then this leopard with four heads and four sets of wings, and then that really ferocious, terrible beast that Daniel just looks at and goes, I've never seen anything like that. He can't even, there's not even an animal to which he can compare it. And God used that vision and those beasts for Daniel to characterize what these upcoming kingdoms were going to be like, okay? And we learned there that Jesus is the Son of Man. Remember it said that a Son of Man was escorted before the Ancient of Days who was sitting on his throne, and he was giving, given sovereign power and ruling authority and a kingdom that is eternal forever and ever. And we learned last week that Jesus is the Son of Man who receives authority, sovereign power from God, whose kingdom will not be destroyed. So we learned those two things about Jesus last week. We're going to learn two more things about Jesus today. And what I really like about the way God revealed these things to Daniel is he goes from the general down to the very specific. Okay? That's how he unfolded it. And so today we're going to learn that Jesus is the anointed one who arrives in Jerusalem, but is cut off. And we'll talk about what that means. And then the fourth one is that Jesus is the all-powerful, glorious, sovereign God in majesty and strength. All right? Very appropriate for our times. Daniel chapter 9. The historical context. What's going on in the history at this point? In 539 B.C., now don't check out on me because I said the, the bad words history and a date, all right? Do not, don't check out on me, all right? I won't bore you this morning. In 539 B.C., this is about 15 years after the vision that Daniel got with those four ferocious beasts that we just looked at last week, okay? Daniel is about 84 years old now. Okay, remember he was taken in 605 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. This is in about 539 B.C. Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians, just like God said. Okay, this is the transition of kingdoms that God had talked about. Daniel is nearing the end of his life. He's working for one king on Friday morning and another king on Saturday morning. That's how rapidly that transition happened. Okay, now, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. Let's read together. In the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus, who was of Median descent and who had been appointed king over the Babylonian empire, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, came to understand from the sacred books that according to the word of the Lord that was disclosed to the prophet Jeremiah, the years for fulfilling for the fulfilling of the desolation of Jerusalem were 70 in number, okay? So Dan Daniel in chapter 9 gives us a really important who was king and when did this happen, okay? Now, who is this new king here in Daniel chapter 9? It's likely, you see it says in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus who was of Median descent, it's likely that the term Darius was like a title for the king is kind of like Pharaoh. There were lots of different Pharaohs, but they all called him Pharaoh. And it's very likely that this Darius referenced here in Daniel chapter 9 is Cyrus the Persian, who became king, 
the first king after the Medes and the Persians defeated Babylon. So when we go from the head of gold to the chest and the arms of silver, this guy is the first king. This is that transition. Or it's the transition from, remember, the winged lion to the bear that's bigger on one side than the other. That's what's going on right here, exactly like God said it would. Now, the Persian king Cyrus is of great importance to us because he's the king who made the decree that the Israelites could leave the land of Babylon and go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. This decree brought the Babylonian captivity to an end. It was prophesied by Isaiah the prophet about 160 or 170 years earlier. And just because it's so amazing to see prophecy in action, Isaiah 44, don't worry about turning over there, just listen. In, in verse 24, listen to what it says here. Now keep in mind, this is written by Isaiah. It predates Cyrus by about 160 years. This is what the Lord, your protector, says. The one who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made everything, who alone stretched out the sky, who fashioned the earth all by myself, who frustrates the omens of the empty talkers, humiliates the omen readers, and overturns the counsel of wise men to make their advice seem foolish. Okay? He goes on down, talks about um, who he is, what he's done. I'm going to skip down to verse 28. I am the one who commissions Cyrus the one I appointed as a shepherd to carry out all my wishes and to decree concerning Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt. And concerning the temple, it will be reconstructed. This is what the Lord says to his chosen one, to Cyrus, whose right hand I hold, in order to subdue nations before him, to disarm kings and to open doors before him. Isn't that fascinating? God predicted this guy by name. And about 160 or so years later, just like God said, it happened. Now, here's the fun part of this. Even secular history, there was a King Cyrus, Isaiah the prophet. All of this is documented stuff. It's amazing, all right? Not, not that we would be amazed that God could do that. It's just really neat to see it spelled out. So, when God says that he is sovereign over kings and rulers of men, he means it. Cyrus's mama named him Cyrus because God wanted her to. Isn't that awesome? It fell right into Isaiah's prophecy. Man, God is awesome. The decree of Cyrus is found over in Ezra chapter 1. This is what he said. The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any one of his people among you, and may his God be with him, may go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and may build the temple of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. That's what he said. He said, go home. Go rebuild it. Now, don't get the idea here that Cyrus serves Yahweh, the one true living God, okay? The, the Persian policy was, you know what? If we're nice to these people and we let them go back home, I bet they'll be loyal to us. That's what they did. And so he knows about Israel's God, and he says to language that will please them greatly, go home, build the temple of your great God, and be good, <laughs> all right? And so that was the decree. You can read all about that over in the book of Ezra. Now, 
while all of this is going on, what is Daniel doing? Daniel is reading the Bible. What's he doing? I learned from the sacred books. What are those? Well, it's the Old Testament. And he specifically mentions Jeremiah. He's got a copy of Jeremiah's prophecy, and he's reading and studying it. Okay, now we are not told in the book of Daniel, but I believe firmly that Daniel knew about Isaiah's prophecy. And I believe firmly that he starts putting Legos together. Okay, and when Cyrus becomes king, Daniel goes, good night. And he learns from Jeremiah's prophecy that the time of the exile to be fulfilled would be 70 years. I think Daniel's just blown away. And what is his response? Look at his response. In verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God this way. When we don't have time to examine Daniel's prayer, it's awesome. Go read it. It'll instruct you. But Daniel's response to seeing all of this unfold from prophecy of Isaiah, from what he read in the book of Jeremiah, where it said, For the Lord says, Only when the 70 years of the Babylonian rule are over will I take up consideration for you. Then I will fulfill my gracious promise to you and restore your homeland. For I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. Now, we know that last part, don't we? What we didn't know is that that is what Daniel is reading in 539 B.C. And it encourages him because he looks at the promise of God who said, I will fulfill my gracious promise to you. I will restore your homeland. I know what I have planned for you, says the Lord. God said that to Israel first. And there's application for every follower of Christ there. But Daniel sees the sure promise of God and he goes to the Lord and he falls on his face and he cries out to God in prayer. And to summarize his prayer, he basically says, Great and awesome God, you are faithful, we are not. You are righteous, we're filled with sin. We blew it and got the consequences you promised us. We've been humiliated. But you are a gracious God. And you promised to restore us. Turn away from your anger. Restore Jerusalem and show us your favor, O God of glory. That's, that's a good summary. He's crying out to the Lord on the basis of what he learns in God's word. And you know, I think just a quick thought here. When we read the Bible, how do we respond? But when I open the scriptures and I'm just reading, and I, and I hear something that God will do, he has said he will do. I mean, like Philippians 4.19, my God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. How, how easy is it just to read over that and keep going and finish my Bible reading assignment for the morning and then go to work or whatever? Daniel stopped, and his prayer was instructed by what he learned from God's Word. And I, and I think, like Daniel, we need to say, man, I'm going to, God, let my praying be instructed by the Bible. Because, man, when we're reading the Bible, 
and it is instructing our prayers, that's how we get in on what Jesus said in John 15. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it because it is for my Father's glory. Word-focused praying gets answers from heaven. And the text that we're going to see, our, sec our third imprint of Christ this morning, is in the context of God answering Daniel's prayer. It is an answer to what Daniel prayed here. Chapter 9, verses 24 and 27. Look over there real quick. It's, I'll back up just a little bit. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy weeks have been determined. Wait a minute. Hold on. Let me back up a little bit. I think I missed something here. Nope, I'm good. All right. Seventy weeks have been determined concerning your people and your holy city to put an end to rebellion, to bring sin to completion, to atone for iniquity, to bring in perpetual righteousness, to seal up the prophetic vision, to anoint a most, and to anoint a most holy place. So know and understand from the issuing of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a prince, arrives, there will be a period of seven weeks and 62 weeks. It, speaking of Jerusalem, will again be built with plaza and moat, but during distressful times. Now, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. And as for the city and the sanctuary, the people of the coming prince will destroy them, but his end will come speedily like a flood. Now, this is one of those like, huh? Passages, right? I mean, you, you read that and you go, those are the ones I just keep reading, okay? But we're going we're gonna to break this apart because this is where our third um, imprint of Christ is in the book of Daniel. Now, this passage is basically going to, it gives us a revealing of Israel's future from Daniel's perspective. And it tells us what will God accomplish, how long will it take, and who's going to carry out this plan that God has. What's he going to do, how long is it going to take, and who's going who's to carry it out. Now look here, in verse 24, Gabriel tells Daniel, 77s have been determined concerning your people and your holy city. Now, his people there are who? Who are Daniel's people? The Israel, the Jews, right? And what, what do you think the holy city is? Jerusalem, yes. You're waking back up, all right? I see, I see the, the blood pulsing in your, in your jugular veins as you're like, you know, respawn. I'm going again, all right? Yeah, he's talking about the Jews and the city of Jerusalem. Now, the question is, what does he mean by this 70 weeks thing here? The Hebrew word Shabuim means sevens, okay? It can refer to a seven-day period, like a week, like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The concept of the Jewish Sabbath comes from this, where the Sabbath is which day of the week? The seventh, six days the Lord created, and then on the seventh he ceased from his work, right? So the Jews observed the, the Sabbath. Seven can also describe a seven-year period of time, okay? Now, when Gabriel says 70 weeks, he means 70 seven-year periods, all right? 
So seven years go by, that's one. Seven more years go by, that's two. What's 70 times seven? Math whizzes. What? 140? You were good at English. 490. <laughs> yeah, 70 times seven, 490. Now, yeah, what's that? It was your second guess, yeah. <laughs> All right, I was good at English too, Mel, it's okay. I'm horrible at math. This is the period of time that God has determined for Israel and Jerusalem during which he will accomplish six things. The text listed them for us. He'll put an end to rebellion. One day, God is going to completely do away with the rebellion of humanity against him, and there won't be any more. The second thing, to bring sin to completion. In other words, to do away with sin forever. Well, that sounds good. To atone for iniquity. Now, atonement means to make a covering, okay? Where was that done? That one's done. Where did that one happen? At the cross. Very good. Jesus atoned for our sin. Fourth, to bring in perpetual righteousness. In other words, righteous living in society that never ends, where people are walking in obedience to God. All right? Fifth, to seal up the prophetic vision. In other words, to fulfill the plans that God has, which he has revealed to us. To bring it all to a completion. The next one, anoint a most holy place, which is speaking of a glorious new temple where the Lord Jesus will be worshipped. Okay? So 490 years in that time period, this is what God's going to accomplish. Okay? Those six things. Now, the kicker here is that the 490 years do not happen without interruption. And we're going to see in just a second. All right? Now, moving forward here. So, as we're breaking this down, from the beginning of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a prince, arrives. What's going on with this right here? And so, this from the issuing of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until an anointed one, a prince, will, ar will arrive. He says there will be seven weeks. How many years is that? Seven times seven? Forty-nine. And 62 weeks. What's 62 times seven? That's harder. I crunched it on my calculator. It's 434. <laughs> That's a tough one, right? But if you add those two together, it's not 490, 483. It's seven short of 490. How many years did God say it was going to take to accomplish those six things he wants to do in the earth? 490. 483, seven years short. Now check this out. It says, after 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. All right? As for the city and the sanctuary, the people of the coming prince will destroy them, but his end will come about speedily. Here's what we've got. Listen carefully. In 444 B.C., Artaxerxes decreed to Nehemiah. Remember? Over in the book of Nehemiah, he goes before the king. He wants to go back and rebuild the city. Artaxerxes told Nehemiah that the Jews could rebuild the city of Jerusalem. You can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. It was this decree that actually gave the Jews permission to rebuild the wall and the whole city. Okay, And this is the decree that Daniel is writing about here. So God tells us that from 444 B.C., when Artaxerxes decreed, Rebuild Jerusalem! 
the time that would go by until an anointed one, a prince, would arrive is a period of seven weeks, 49 years, plus a period of 62 weeks, 434 years, for a total of 483. Now, during this time, what's going to happen? The city of Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. That's very likely what that seven-week period of time is. It took about 49 years for them to totally clear the rubble and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And remember, he says here it's going to be done in distressful times. What was it like for Nehemiah and the boys as they rebuilt that wall in that city? It was difficult. They had opposition from everybody. Okay? So that's what that part is talking about. Now, the whole next portion here, when, now when you add all of this together, now, now watch this. The city is rebuilt, okay? Now, um, from the date of Artaxerxes' to de decree to rebuild the Jerusalem and the number of years that were decreed right here in Daniel 9, okay? Biblical scholars have done detailed calculations using the Babylonian and the Jewish calendar of Daniel's day. Now, this was a 360-day calendar. How many is, that, how many is in our, our calendar? 365, okay? That's really important. Now, if you work forward in time from 443, uh, 444 B.C., if you go forward in time toward us, 483 years using a 360-day calendar, you come to the year 33 A.D. on our calendar. What happened in 33 A.D.? Jesus was crucified. I'm going to just try to let this sink in for just a second. God tells Daniel, this exact period of time is going to go by. Jerusalem will be built, and an anointed one, a prince, will come, and he will be cut off. And at A.D. 33, an anointed one, the Hebrew word uh, Mashiach is anointed, and Jesus' Jewish, uh, Hebrew name would be uh, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. The Greek word for anointed is Christ. It's one who is specially chosen and approved of by God to do God's will. An anointed one came to Jerusalem in 33 AD, rejected by the Jewish nation, crucified, prophecy fulfilled. Is that incredible? That is amazing. Not that God could do it, because he can do anything. But when I, first time I studied that and read it, I was like, I wasn't wearing glasses back then. I was like, I had to just take a step back. At the, at the absolute incredible accuracy, mathematical even, of prophecy right here. And Jesus is our king who died for our sins, and he rose from the dead. He is the anointed one of Daniel 9 who came to Jerusalem and was cut off. I, I love this stuff. I hope you do too. This encourages my faith so much to see, God, look what you did. Do you see what you did right there? He's like, yes. I knew I was going to do it. Oh, I, you know. It's amazing. And I hope it encourages you. Our second imprint of Christ, we'll look at this one and we'll be done, is over. And it's really, we're not going to look at all the text, but between chapter 10 and chapter 12. And the title of this one is The Man Clothed in Linen. Okay? Not like John Lennon. But linen, like L-I-N-E-N, 
close, okay? Don't we start singing, imagine there's no whatever, all right? Now, go over to Daniel chapter 10. Again, Daniel's going to tell us when he writes this, okay? In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. This message was true and concerned a great war. He understood the message and gained insight by the vision. Now, the one we just looked at, the anointed one cut off his prophecy about Jesus and his crucifixion, happened in the first year of King Cyrus. This one happens when? Verse 1. In the third year. So, I mean, it's a, it's a couple of years, two and a half-ish years later, depending on how the dates fell. Now Daniel is about 87 years old. And you know what? I don't care who you are. That's getting on up there. Because, I mean, we just don't get a whole lot more than that in life. And his ministry spanned so many years. I hope I didn't hurt anybody's feelings right there. I'm just going to say, like, 74 is the average lifespan. If you're making anything past 75, you, you're doing awesome. All right? Praise the Lord and thank him for that extra credit. But uh, anyway... So Daniel's about 87. He has been mourning and fasting and praying for three weeks, okay? And it appears that he was fasting and praying out of concern for the Jews who had gone back to Jerusalem. Because Cyrus made the decree, Ezra and the boys pack up their families and they go to Jerusalem to start the work of rebuilding the temple with great opposition, okay? Now... Daniel knew from previous prophecies that they were going to struggle a lot. He's concerned about them. He is on his face before the Lord, fasting, weeping, and praying. Verse 14. Look over to verse 14 here in chapter 10. It gives us the purpose. Why did God give this to Daniel? Now I have come to help you. And this is uh, an angel speaking. Now I have come to help you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to future days. So what is the purpose of this whole thing? So Daniel can understand what? What's going to happen to Israel in the future? Now this vision that, God, that Daniel is going to receive is the longest and the most detailed of all of these. But I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the three-cent version. It sums up all of the interactions of the Greek kingdom and all of the inward fighting that they had right in there. Okay? That's basically what it's going to talk about. Now, the vision has two parts. The first part describes in detail what happens from Cyrus, the, who is currently the king, all the way to 164 B.C. to a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Talk more about that Catla in just a minute. It's a bad dude. Okay? This time period was filled with political plotting, betrayal, war, and murder as godless rulers conspired against one another for power. Sounds like a great Netflix series, right? That's what was going on. The worst of all these kings was a terrible man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He gave himself that last name. It means God manifest. You think he had an ego problem? Yep, he did. God manifest is what he wanted to be called. And he ruled over part of the Greek kingdom from 175 B.C. to 164. Okay? He was an arrogant, violent, deceitful, cunning murderer. And he is the Old Testament foreshadowing of the Antichrist himself. 
This is the guy that God uses in the, in, in, on the pages of history to, to point people to understand what Antichrist will be like in the future. If that tells you anything about what this dude was like. He hated the Jews. He persecuted them mercilessly. The worst of it was in 168 B.C. He was frustrated because his, his plans to go and to attack Egypt were foiled by the Romans who said, you mess with them, you mess with us, go home. And so he went home. He went into Jerusalem, and on, the, on a Sabbath, he attacked it and he killed thousands of people, just slaughtered them. And he rounded up women and children, sold them all as slaves. He went into the temple, he set up an altar of Zeus. Okay, that's his God, remember? Antiochus is a Greek. And he slaughters a pig on it. He desecrates the temple, making it unfit for the Jews to worship there. You can go read that. It's recorded history. Okay? That happened. He wanted to eliminate the Jews and their way of life and make everybody to be Greek in the way they worshipped and lived and thought. That's what he wanted to do. He, more than any other Old Testament figure, mirrors the Antichrist. As a matter of fact, when we have prophecies in Daniel are things that he did, it just like there's this blurry little line, and then it goes into things that the Antichrist will do in the future. That's how, that's the connection there. Okay? Now, the other part of this vision dealt with the far future. Part of it was the history of the Greek kingdoms at war, the assault upon the Jews by Antiochus Epiphanes. The rest of it looks into the far distant future, dealing with Antichrist in the end. Now, look at chapter 10, starting in verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, I was beside the great river, the Tigris. I looked up and I saw a man clothed in linen. Around his waist was a belt made of gold from Uphaz. His body resembled yellow jasper, and his face had an appearance like lightning. His eyes were like the blazing torches. His arms and feet had the gleam of polished bronze. His voice thundered forth like the sound of a large crowd. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men with me who were with me did not see it. On the contrary, they were overcome with fright and they ran away to hide. And I was left alone to see the great vision. I was, my strength was drained from me and my vigor disappeared. I was without energy. I listened to his voice, and as I did so, I fell into a trance-like sleep with my face to the ground. Who is this man clothed in linen? Let's make some quick observations. First, he's clothed in linen. And I got to thinking, I'm like, Daniel specifically writes that he was clothed in linen. When you see a detail like that, you got to stop and say, why did Daniel feel the need to point that out? It's got to be significant. I did, a little, I did a little study. Now check this out. If you look in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 32, it tells us that the high priest wore linen garments. And as the priests presided over the worship of Israel, they wore garments of white, clean linen. 
I found another example, King David, when 1 Chronicles 15, when he is bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, okay? He is, listen to what he was wearing, priestly linen garments, and he's wearing what they called an ephod. Only the priests wore this outfit. It's the worship leader uniform for the priests, if I could put it that way. David wore one. He made sacrifices to the Lord while wearing this linen garment, and he danced before the Lord, and he worshiped God. And David acted both as prophet, priest, and king. That's where David acted like a priest, and he so prefigures the coming of Jesus, who is prophet, priest, and king. Now, the man in this vision that Daniel sees is wearing white linen. The linen stresses purity, holiness, uniqueness. He's set apart. No one else, Daniel has seen a lot of stuff in, the, in this book. He hadn't seen anybody wearing linen until he gets to chapter 10. This man also has a fine golden belt around his waist. His body resembles yellow-colored jasper stone. Guy's glowing, okay? His face has the appearance of lightning. Have you ever been watching a lightning storm, and you get a really, it's kind of close, and just lights up, and you happen to be looking kind of right where the lightning bolt goes? It's incredible. That's the only way Daniel knows how to describe his face. His eyes are like a fiery flame. His arms and feet have the glow of polished bronze, kind of an orangish amber color. All right? And listen, his voice thunders like the sound of a large crowd. I had the incredible joy of being at the seven overtime game when AM beat LSU. I heard the roar of a large crowd. Okay? When they scored that last touchdown and the Maggies knew it was over, they went crazy. It was, you can try to talk to somebody who's in proximity and it's hard to hear each other. If you've ever been in a large crowd like that, that's how Daniel described the voice of Jeet, the man in linen. I just tipped my hand. Golly, you were going there already. That's how he describes his voice. Now, this is a highly unique individual and I, and I'm not going to, don't quote me verbatim on this, but I don't know of another place in the Old Testament where you see that. Ezekiel had some pretty cool visions of the Lord. Isaiah sees the Lord high up on a throne. A train of his robe fills a temple. I don't know that there's another description like this one. There might be in Ezekiel, but it's highly unique. However, go over to the book of Revelation real quick. Chapter 1. The Apostle John, on the Lord's day, is in the Spirit. And uh, in um, verse 9, no, 12, sorry. Yeah, we'll start in verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother, and the one who shares with you in the persecution, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the testimony about Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Verse 12, I turned to see who was speaking to me, and then when I did so, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one 
like a son of man. That's Daniel 7. That's what we looked at last week. He's like a son of man. He was dressed in a robe extending down to his feet. Man dressed in linen. Okay. He wore a wide golden belt around his chest. His head and hair were as white as wool, even as white as snow. His eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet was like polished, were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. That's the analogy John shows. So forth and so on. He speaks, and John says, I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. That is exactly described by another man what Daniel saw in the vision that we just looked at. The fourth and the final imprint of Christ in the book of Daniel is the man clothed in linen, and it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can take John 1 and you can take Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12, and you, you, the, the, the similarities are so glaringly obvious it could only be Jesus. And you know, I got to thinking, and I'm wrapping up here, why does the Lord wait until this point in the book to reveal himself this way to Daniel? Because this is highly unique. And I thought, you know, he starts out very general, and it gets more and more specific. Jesus was the rock, shatters the kingdoms of the world. He's one like a son of man. He's the anointed one who is cut off. And then, he's the glorious, sovereign, God of gods, King of kings, that Daniel tries to describe. He's the risen. He's the living the eternal king. And he is like no one else. And of all of these kingdoms and rulers that Daniel has looked at, in all of these, there is a, a worldly kingdom and there's Jesus. In a worldly kingdom and there's Jesus. And there's a, a worldly kingdom and Jesus dies. But he rises from the dead. And then and at the end of it, there's this whole tumults of these worldly kingdoms and Jesus comes in in the end and that's it I think that's why God did it that way because you are left at the end of the book of Daniel having to step back and take a deep breath at the majesty and the eternal splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ and he is the one who will come and destroy the kingdoms of the world. And you can, by faith, stand on that rock and live. Or you can, through unbelief, fall on that rock and be destroyed. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. We're going to close with prayer in just a moment. And then like we did last week, we're just going to sing our way out of here. If there is one of you who is here this morning and you're thinking, you know, that scares me. I don't know if I know Jesus. I don't want to deal with that man dressed in linen. Unless I'm on his team, I want to be on that team. I would encourage you, right where you are seated, call out to the Lord. God, I have sinned against you. I am guilty. Please forgive me and save me. I believe that Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. And come and follow Christ. And if, if you're here and 
man, you've known Christ for a lot of years, and you're hearing all this, and you're just blown away at the splendor and majesty of Jesus. Let that sink in. And do not forget to hold him in awe and wonder. And remember that the awesome, glorious, eternal king who will rule for eternity, if you know Jesus as your Savior, is your father. And you're his child forever. You're in his family. Let that sink in this Father's Day. Let me pray for us. Dear God in heaven, we humble ourselves before you, the living God. Your Son is the preeminent one over all. He is the King who will rule for eternity. He is the one who will destroy the godless nations of this world. And their arrogance will be shattered and defeated at the return of Jesus. He is the one who secured our redemption when he died and he rose from the dead. And we cannot help but worship. He is the living God. And we, by grace through faith in him, are your sons and daughters. Hallelujah. We can only praise you and give you thanks. Lord, help us to be caught in the awe and the wonder of your Son. For he is the glorious one. And we will stand on this rock by faith and be delivered into your glorious presence. In Jesus' name. We'd like to personally thank you for taking the time out of your day to hear our latest message. Do us a favor and send an email to outreach at fbctroytx.org to let us know that you heard us and what you thought of the message. Remember to visit fbctroytx.org to learn more about how we support our local community. Again, thank you for listening.